Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning will be from Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. We'll be reading from the New King James Version. And when a great multitude had gathered, and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away, because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You may be seated. Our text for today's lesson is going to be in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 19. If you'll be turning over there, you will be able to follow the lesson a lot better if you can look at this passage. Matthew chapter 6, it's the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to start in verse 19. It's wonderful to see you here. I've been preaching this past week in Paintsville, Kentucky. And wonderful congregation, faithful church of God's people on... I started the meeting on Monday night, got to the meeting, things were typical, preached and went back to my hotel. On Tuesday night, second night of the meeting, I arrived about 15 minutes early and the parking lot was full. The street in front of the building was lined with cars. The street, other side of the street lined with cars. Everywhere you looked, there were cars. There was an older brother standing there. When he saw my car, he motioned to me to park in the grass. And he had a spot there where I could park in the grass, which is what I did. Now, I don't think I'm an arrogant person. But I have to confess to you, there was this moment when I thought, wowee. This is, there's a lot of people here tonight, which of course was quickly um, removed. I mean, cold water was poured on that when I realized that across the street was a football stadium. <laughs> it's, it's a high school football stadium, and in this little town, high school football is king, and, and when it happens, all the town turns out, and they fill up every place there is to park. We still had a good meeting, but those cars weren't there to hear me preach. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is going to talk about Christians and their money. And included in this is a metaphor. Now, you remember from when you were in school, the difference between a metaphor and a simile. A simile, both of them are, are two things that are compared to one another, similar in some way. A simile is when typically the word as or like is used. And so you say, he's strong as an ox. But a metaphor is a stronger way to say it. It would be to say, he's an ox. 
All right, that's a metaphor. And, and what Jesus is going to use here in this passage is a metaphor. Let's read together. I'm in Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not, and Jesus is preaching, greatest sermon ever preached, Sermon on the Mount, middle of the sermon. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And now the metaphor. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And then through the end of the chapter. I really like the metaphor in the way that the King James phrased it. And I want you to see that, that in the New King James, from which I just read, he says the lamp of the body is the eye. If the eye be good or if it be bad, and there's the discussion. The King James, the old one, said it this way. The light of the body is the eye. Not the lamp of the body. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single. Now that's going to make more sense as we go down through this lesson. I've been doing a great deal of study this week on on money and Christians. Our Christians, money. How do we handle our finances? And what did Jesus have to say about this? Now, there's a bit of frustration. If I can just start, and I'm not going to spend much time on this, but I just want to share my own frustration with something that I found. And that is that you'll often find blogs or articles or commentaries which will make this assertion that Jesus spoke on the subject of Christian, Christian finances more than any other subject, more than any other given subject. He spent most time on this one. But the implication of that is wrong. It's, it's frankly very much like what we did in reporting COVID deaths. And you remember, we were frustrated by the fact that people were dying with different kinds of primary causes. But if they happened to have COVID, it was attributed to COVID. They were added to the list of the COVID deaths. And a similar thing is true in, in writings about Christian finances and whether, of what Jesus had to say. Some of them would write and say, in fact, this is pretty common would write and say that of the 39 or 40 parables of Jesus, 11 to 16 of them are about our money, about finances. The, the, the hidden problem with that, the fallacy of that, is that so much of what Jesus said, for example, in the parables, has something to do with money, but it's not about how we handle our money. It's not about that at all. Matthew 6 is. That's our text for today. But just, just, just let me illustrate the point. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus talks about a vineyard owner. First of the day, remember, he hires people to come in and work in his vineyard. And he says, I'll pay you a denarius for the whole day. Had people come in at the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, the eleventh hour. He said, I'll treat you right. I'll do what's right. At the end of the day, he paid the people who came at the end of the day and just worked, worked a little bit of time. He paid them the same as he paid the people who had sweated all day long. There was great frustration in those people who had worked all day long. And the point then he made is about judgment. It is about it's, well, to just put a point on it, if a, if a man is very old and he obeys the gospel and then he passes away three weeks later, he's going to go to the same heaven as the people who have been Christians since they were 14, right? Well, there's the point. It has nothing really to do with our money and how we spend our money. This is not about how you ought to do horticulture or how you ought to run your business and how you pay your employees. It's nothing about that. 
it's incidental that it was about money. What about Luke chapter 15? And you had, you had uh, three different parables. Remember, parables of Jesus. You have a lost, uh, you have a lost uh, sheep, a lost coin, a lost boy. And then the one about the coin was a woman who had 10 coins, silver coins, and she loses one. And what does she do? She lights a lamp and she sweeps the house. And when she finds the coin, she calls her friends in. So is that about money? Is that parable about money? Well, not really. No, he uses money to illustrate the point. This, now, I want to give you an overview quickly of what I believe to be the eight important things that the Bible teaches about your money. I know this is too brief. I mean, you know, this is a big subject, but just for the lesson, for the sake of what we're going to discuss in a minute in Matthew 6, I'm going to give you this list. So let's talk about money. Next slide. There we go. Eight principles about money. Here's the first one. God, God owns everything. Here's Exodus chapter 19. For all the earth is mine. Number two, these are the principles you need to know about your money. How are you doing about this? How, how's your Christianity as it relates to your finances? Are we getting it right? Eight things. The second one is this. My money reflects my discipleship. It's a good barometer about how my discipleship is doing. Matthew six twenty four. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one, love the other, or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God in mammon. The word mammon means money that is gotten in a way that would displease God. I, I cannot prioritize my financial things over my responsibility to God. And if that happens, then I violated the, the financial rule here, the law that is laid down in Matthew 6. Number three, I'm obligated to serve God with my money, including in worship. This morning, we gave of our means. We did that because of passages like 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2. And um, there's no question in my mind but what our, our obeisance to God involving our contribution is part of our worship. I don't know if you've given that any thought, but I'm confident from what I know of Scripture that it is part of our worship. We are offering our gift to God in a financial way. Here's number four. God expects a man to work a job, and if a man won't work, neither should he eat. Now, that's incorporated. I mean, I go to work in order to make a living, right? That's what we do. We work in order to make money. That's not inconsistent with putting God first. Not inconsistent at all. Number five, I must kill greed. I've got to eradicate it from my life and covetousness that's in my heart. I've got to get rid of that. Hebrews 13, 5, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Number seven, there are weighty problems that come with having a lot of money. Somebody was telling me recently about a brother in the church, a good man so far as I know, but about his magnificent wealth. He had oil fields, he had farms, he had retail businesses. He had cattle. And when, when they, they, they were talking about it, it was just massive. And I thought, I declare I don't want to be that. I, how, how much pressure must be on a man like that to keep up with all, all of his holdings? So far as I know, he's deceased now. But while he was here on earth, my, imagine the burden of having those kinds of responsibilities. I just don't think I want to have that. Well, here's First Timothy 6, verse 9. They that will be rich. In other words, that is the obligation or the uh, agenda for me. That's what I want to do. My objective is to be rich. They fall into temptation and a snare. 
and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. The love of money is the root of all evil, which while some have coveted after, covet means that I want it more than I want to please God, which while some have coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. There, you know what? The Bible doesn't teach that it's wrong to have money. And the Bible does not obligate us to poverty. But what it does do is what is in Matthew chapter 6, which is our text today. I've got to have my priorities right. And here's number eight. Here's the last one of my list of eight. Contentment is greater in your life. It's a greater goal than riches. Now this you must never forget. If I had to forget, this is the one I'd want you to have. Contentment is a greater goal than riches. Who cares if your bank account is fat if you don't have contentment? Is that any good? And I can tell you contentment is not measured by how much money you have in the bank, is it? I know people with lots and lots of money who are miserable. I know people who have very little money who are just as happy as they can be. Don't you? Here's Philippians 4 and verse 11. Not that I speak in respect to need. I've learned in whatever state I am to to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everyone, all things I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, to abound and suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. All right. Now we get back to the text. And I want to open up this, this curious metaphor for you. And what Jesus says here is about a light. And it's about your eyes. And here's what he said. I'm in Matthew 6 and verse 22. The lamp of the body, or King James, the light of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? When I was a boy, we would go to my grandfather's, my papa's house. And I've told you about this house. It was a log house, good size, a couple of bedrooms, a kitchen, and a a living room. And He and his boys built it back in the early 30s, as I recall. And when you'd go up to the loft or the the attic, there was a staircase. It wasn't like stairs. It was more like a ladder, maybe a little heavier than a ladder. But you'd climb up there, and I loved going up there because it was kind of spooky. And there was a string. I think there was a bulb that would hang in the middle. And there was a, a long string then that would loop through some bent nails all the way over so that when you came up the stairs, you could reach and feel till you felt a string and you could jerk it and the light in the middle would come on. But if it was daytime, you didn't need that. And what you would do is get to the top and, and it was lit by these little windows in the gables on either end of that attic. And you can tell that I can see it right now in my mind. And they were not very big windows, but it would illuminate that attic enough that you could kind of make your way around. I want you to consider the lamp of the body is the eye, like that window, or those two windows. Now, now because it was the attic, you'd get dirt daubers up there, and, and sometimes, and some, lots of dust was up there. It was musty. And over a period of time, because people didn't go up there very much, the windows would get, get kind of frosted over with dust until you couldn't see out of them very well. They just needed a good cleaning, but you couldn't They didn't let as much light in, and you couldn't see very much through them. Now, here's the point. The light of the body is the eye. And what it is is that through this window of my eye, my eyes, I'm I'm able to to discern and learn 
about all sorts of things, but it's also about my perception. And as a Christian, there are things that I see that I know are not good for me. There are things that I might see and, and otherwise I might desire them, want them, crave them, but, but it's not right. And so my eyes also, because I'm growing and learning in Christ, they're perceptive. I can perceive with what I see. The light of the body is the eye. And if your eye be single, now bear in mind, this does not, again, obligate us to poverty. And it's not saying that it's wrong to have money. People are going to work for a living and some are going to make more than others and invest. And there's nothing wrong with investing. And sometimes people have more than others. And there's nothing wrong with that. I tell you, the point is that the light of the body is the eye, and my eye's got to be single, which is to say that I have no, no confusion in my world about what's most important. And everything I see, every day I live, I live with the knowledge that what is most important is my allegiance to Jesus Christ. It doesn't affect just part of my life, and some people are messed up about that. And what they, what they see is that they have a job, and they have school, and they've got recreation, and they've got home responsibilities, and blah, 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 blah. And you get a whole long list of things, and one of those on that list of all i got to do is that I also I go to church. That's just wrong. The Bible won't support that. It's just not Christianity. It's just not it. This is it. The light of the body is the eye. And if your eye be single, your whole body would be full of light. What's light? Well, you know, here's John chapter 8 and verse 12. Now, light, next slide, here we go. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I'm the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the life of light. If your eye be single, you'll be full of light. Now, let's go to the next verse. Here's Matthew five 14. You're the light of the world. You had it. There you go. A city set up on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle or a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand it gives light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Same, same principle. And light is the truth, the reality that Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And he's the only path by which I can get heaven. I, I can't have heaven without him. What about your eyesight? What it means is, the principle is prioritization. And it's a context of my money. It's about finances and about how I deal with monetary things and about, about money. And the answer is that Jesus gives me this ladder. I walk up the ladder and I stand up so that I can see over the top of all the concerns of this life, all the mundane, the minutia of possessions and the, all the different requirements that possessions put on us. You've got to maintain them. And I wouldn't trade places with that man I talked about a while ago. I wouldn't. But Jesus gives us a ladder, and we can look out over those things, and what we see is what's really true and right and good, and this is the way that Christians have to live. And there's the metaphor. And it's easy to see when you look at the verses before and after. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Don't do that. That's before it. Then after it, he says, no man can serve two masters. Now, next point, Let, let's put flesh and blood on this. Let me... Let me let me show you a couple of occasions where people are involved. Here's Genesis chapter 13. And you remember this, and Abraham and Lot, and Lot is Abraham's nephew, and they're, they're having problems between their herdsmen. 
And Abraham says to Lot, there's, there's, no, there's no sense in that. There's plenty of land for your herds and mine too. There's no reason why we have to have this difficulty. I tell you what, you, you pick which direction you'd like to go and you can have that land and I'll take whichever you don't choose. And it's in Lot. It's something in Lot. And it's the, the thing that you and I have to get to understand Matthew 6. We've got to practice this. Lot looks, looks at the plain of Jordan and he sees it's great farmland. Oh, that's dark, rich soil. I can make money. And he hears the cash. He hears the cling of coin. That's what, that's what he sees down there in that rich farmland. The problem is Sodom and Gomorrah down there. Now go ahead and stop him. Try to reason with him. Look, Lot, I know what's going to happen. You choose this. What's going to happen is that you're going to move your wife down there and you're going to have your kids there and your, your children are going to be raised in that atmosphere of, you know what's going to happen. And ultimately, one day, if you choose this, your wife is going to long for it and she's going to turn into a pillar of salt. And your two daughters are going to, well, you can read that later. It's not going to end well. Go ahead and try to tell him at this point, this future hasn't occurred. And he's standing there looking at that Jordan plain, and it just, it just seems so good to him. And so he says, I'll take that land. That was a bad mistake. What was his problem? He wasn't single-hearted. The problem was that his, his eye was not single and his soul was full of darkness at this point, and he couldn't see it. He wouldn't see it. You go to chapter 22, and you read about Abraham, and God says, Abraham, I want you to take your son Isaac onto a mountain in Moriah that I'll tell you of. Offer him as a burnt offering. Hebrews 11 and verse 17 says that Abraham offered Isaac. He did. In his heart, he did. This is, this is essential to the point of Jesus in Matthew 6. Our text today is uh, not that God's going to command us to sacrifice our children. And God did not allow Abraham to, to do that. But he wanted to know if Abraham would put God first no matter what. And Abraham did exactly that. You want to know what you call that? You call that a single eye. His eye was good. And how great is that light? How great is the light in Abraham? And so you think about Philippians chapter 3 and verse 13. Here's Paul and the Apostle Paul, who is a terribly busy man. You know, you think about your schedule and mine. We're very busy people. Don't you know Paul was busy? And yet here's what he said. I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are before, I pressed, you know what? One thing I do. That's it. Wait a minute. That's it. One thing I do. What does it mean? If your eye be single, that's what it means. In your life, you've got to do what Paul, I've got to do what Paul is doing here. And, and the point is that I've got a list of all the things I must accomplish this week or next week or the week after that. And yet it's also true, simultaneously true, that I can say without hesitation, but one thing I do, but one thing I do, and that is, I'm going to serve Christ with whatever I'm about in any given day. That's the point. So how do you judge whether or not you're right about money? And it's not about how much you have. It's about how you treat it. And it's about how you, how you recognize Jesus Christ in your life and serve him regardless of the money. <sighs> I'm reminded of Dennis, who was a friend of mine when I was a young preacher in Pulaski, Tennessee. And Dennis owned his own body shop, and he was a good guy. He was my friend. He had a young boy, a preteen, and the boy broke his arm one day. 
playing ball or something. I don't know. But Dennis took him, rushed him to the emergency room. The boy was in a good bit of pain. But when he got there, there was lots of people there. And the, 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 the girl, the receptionist, was having trouble not only because I'm sure she had too much to do, but also because there was something about the insurance and the paperwork and questions and ew, it got all bogged down. And Dennis rather got filled up with the fact that his son was in pain. And I'm not recommending what he did, but I just want to tell you what he did to illustrate the point. He pulled out his wallet and he said, ma'am, and he laid the wallet down in front of her. You can have all the money in that wallet. You can have all the credit cards. I need you to get my boy some help right now. And he gave her the money. He gave her the wallet. Because that was the only thing on his mind. It took dominance over everything else. Now, maybe that's a poor illustration, but you get the point that Paul says, all these things that that encompass my life or have been involved in my life, but this one thing I do, one thing I do. Now, that's what Jesus is teaching. If your eye be single, you'll be full of light. In Romans 12 and verse 1, our lives, is, they're described as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. Now, I want to run down some verses of Scripture. And I'm going to, for time's sake, I'm not going to spend much time. I just want to kind of scroll down through these. There, this concept that Jesus is teaching us is taught in different places. And I want you to get the different kind of wording because this will help to solidify this. Here's Matthew 5 and 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, you've read that a lot of times. You know what it means? It means exactly what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 6 when he said, if your eyes single, your whole body will be full of light. Pure in heart means I got this figured out. I'm busy. I've got a full life, a really full life, lots of responsibilities, but I'm not confused about this. Jesus is my life, and I'm going to live with him, uh, for him, no matter what, in every aspect of my life. Colossians 3.22. This is, I'm going to give you a few verses here that have this phrase, singleness of heart. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart. Wait a minute. That's it. That is it. How about Ephesians 6.5? Servants, be obedient to them who are your masters. Singleness of heart as unto Christ. Acts 2.46, you, from, you, you know this one. They continue daily, steadfastly, one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They ate their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Psalm 57.7, I love this. My heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise. But now what about the bad eye? Jesus said, how great can be the darkness. It's not so hard to figure out, but I need you to see this in order to to grasp this this point really well. You you know uh, James chapter 4 and verse 4, where James writes to Christians and says, you adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know the friendship of the world is enmity with God? But he calls them adulterers and adulteresses. They're not involved in sexual sin. That's not the point. It's about their relationship to God. And I was uh, recently, uh, I was recently told about a, a woman who had been married a long time, considerable amount of time, and she was carrying on an adulterous affair with another man. 
for a period of time. And ultimately, her husband discovered it. You might be interested to know the different ways. There's a list of ways. I won't go through them, but a list of ways that a spouse who's made is cheating figures it out. And, and if you ever decide you really want to go into the sin of adultery and cheat, you probably need to read this list first because it's not so hard. And the big one, and this is not going to make you happy if you want to be an adulterer, is that we live in patterns of which we're largely unaware. And our spouses know those patterns. And when we're doing something like that, the spouse can sense something is not right. They may not know what it is, and they may not suspect adultery, but they know something is off. And that's what happened in this case. The husband ultimately found out what was going on, asked the right questions, found the right answers, some cell phone investigation and all of that stuff, and then it was revealed. The point I want to get to is that the woman involved repented. The husband wanted to take her back, and so she, she repented. And in a couple of days, she turned up missing for about a week as I understand it. She was with him. And the problem is, and I've seen this more than once in my life, a person like that decides I love both of them. I love my husband and I love this other man too. I love them both and I'm in a conundrum. I want you to know that a husband cannot live with that for very long and he won't. Now, marriage requires loyalty. Adultery can't survive with loyalty, but marriage requires it. It demands it. And here's what Jesus is teaching us, and it's what's in James chapter 4 and verse 4. That's why he said, you adulterers and adulteresses, know you not the friendship of the world is enmity with God. You can't do that. You can't. I, I, I require your allegiance, and I require that your eye be single, that, that you be full of light got to keep the glass clean. And then in verse 8, here's James chapter 4 and verse 8, draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh to you. And, and here's the petition, here's, the, here's what he's asking, cleanse your hands, your sin, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. How does a, here's how I want to wind this up, I know my time is gone. How, how does a Christian with a single eye behave? What's it like? Well, I, 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 there's a number of ways that this shows up, evidence of this. One has to do with his worship patterns. He's not going to make petty excuses and say, you know, I just, I just don't come all the time. My habit is to not. I come this, 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 this. Because that would reflect something besides a single eye. He never gets the answer wrong to the question, what's the most important thing to your, in your life? or what matters the most, or he'll never get a mistake or, or commit a mistake when asked the question, what's true success? Because he knows. He could say it in his sleep. You could wake him up in his drowsy state and say, what's true success? And he could tell you that it's living your life and going to heaven. He's got that. His giving, financial giving to the work of the church, the Lord is cheerful. He loves the scripture. He rears his children in such a way that it depicts that the most important thing is, is raising them to be Christians. And he's going to say things like this to them. He will say, I will support you in whatever vocation you choose in life. You can count on me, provided that you're a faithful Christian. If you're a faithful Christian, I'll back you no matter what. You choose what you want to do, but you've got to be a faithful Christian. It's the clear eye, the single-minded man who's devoted to Christ. 
and in his workplace, he's always going to have that voice that stands up for what's ethically right, morally right, even if it means a demotion or problems in his job, because his eye is clear. Hebrews 12 and verse 1, seeing we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us. Let's run with patience. See, it's, it's, it's a race. Let's run with, this is your life. If you're a Christian, let's run with patience the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. What are you doing? I'm going to have a single eye. Now, see, a race, you're running in a race, you better not spend a lot of time turning around to look back. You'll just lose. You may injure yourself in the process. You look forward. And in the case of a Christian, we're looking unto Jesus. And that is the meaning of the metaphor in Matthew chapter 6, 22 and 23. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.